Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 33, uh, and I'm Roger Pang, and I'm here with Hillary Parker. Um, how are you, Hillary? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? That sounded very strange. I don't know why. <laughs> good to mix it up. Um, so um, we have a couple topics today. We're going to talk about uh, data science interviews, and we're also going to talk about uh, opinionated analysis development. Um, but before we do that, uh, we have a one piece of follow-up, I think. Yeah. Which is um, that I last, I think, was it on the last episode or maybe it was the one before that where I talked about my podcasting uh, setup, kind of mm-hmm. how the equipment that we use. And and I wrote a blog post about that. Uh, so it has a little bit more detail, has links to the equipment that, you know, that I use. And so um, you can find that on the Simply Statistics blog and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So you can read about it in detail if you want. Awesome. Um, and just a, a reminder, last week we, or last episode, I should say, we... Um, introduced a third level of our patreon um page uh which is a three dollar per episode level where you can get special access well you, first of all you get the two dollar level benefits which is a hex sticker and you also get access to our outtakes from each episode uh so feel free to sign up for the three dollar per episode level on patreon so that's patreon.com slash nss deviations so our first topic uh, for this episode is um, data science interviews, which was, this was my idea. And the reason why is, is this morning I was kind of, I think I was driving to work and um, uh, for some reason it just popped in my head. And I don't believe we've ever actually talked about, I was trying to think if we've ever talked about this before. I feel like we talked about a, something similar at some point. Maybe, oh, you know what it was? It was talking about the um, credentialing system and whether that might be helpful for interviews but we've never just talked about interviews themselves yeah so i i have to say like i am actually somewhat curious because i've never interviewed for a data science job when i was interviewing for jobs back in the day we haven't done like a good like roger back in the day kind of thing yeah. um, so there were no data science jobs right, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah way back then yeah so uh, i never had that chance and I, so, and I'm curious to know, like, whether the interview process for this, for tech stuff kind of has changed. Because um, I did interview for some software jobs. and. Oh, interesting. I was about to ask, so maybe you should give the background. Because you're a professor now, so. Yes. You didn't go straight through, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, like, going even farther back than you think I'm going. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when I uh, graduated from college, um, I interviewed for a whole bunch of stuff, plus applied to grad school. Um, oh. and so, and because the job interviews kind of happened before the grad school applications kind of came back, um, I did a lot of interviews before I found out. And, um, so I interviewed at a lot of like software, kind of software engineering type positions. Um, and also like, I, there was a lot of like consulting companies. I interviewed at like investment banks. Mm, <laughs> interesting. It was yeah. It was bizarre. Yeah. I interviewed yeah. at, and back, and back then like hedge funds were not that well known, but I did some of those and, wow. um, and uh, anyway, they were all the uh, most of the financial stuff was I was horrible at. I, I didn't even like come close. Um, <laughs> come close to getting the job, or just come close to wanting to do it. Oh, come come close to even like getting near a job. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I did a lot of like the software engineering types of jobs back then, and also the, the consulting ones in particular. There was a lot of like kind of like team um, team style interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like they'd bring in a group of people. Um, often like on a Saturday or something like that. Interesting. And, and uh, this is mostly for consulting companies. Uh, and then you, they'd have you, they put you into like little groups of like random other people and you'd have to solve some problem and, and they kind of watch as you work together and kind of who says what and who wow. stays in the background. Yeah. Interesting. Um, 
and and then software engineering in my experience was more just like you meet with individual people and they like ask you to write programs <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so and i was not good at that at all i i specifically remember my microsoft interview um which was which i should say was the coveted position of the time yeah wait are you gonna give us some years here <laughs> this was this was i mean like dates yeah this would have been 19, 1999. Okay. All right. Yeah. That is that. Was that when was there was the first like tech bubble? The dot com kind of crash was 2001. Oh, okay. Yeah. I so think. you could have been part of that. <laughs> yeah. So when I was interviewing, it was it was like big time bubble time. Yeah. 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 And um, it was anyway, but but like Microsoft was the was the king of the hill. And if you could get an engineering position there, it was you were golden. I mean, mm-hmm. you probably still are, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that was like I remember. I, I don't know why I remember this. You had I had to write a, a program in C that like reversed a string. I think was it. Was. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. And then a couple of C, a couple of C programming type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and I don't remember the rest. But anyway, that sounds actually pretty similar. <laughs> Are you saying that, so? You're saying things haven't changed? Much? I mean, it, that certainly what you're describing for Microsoft sounds familiar, or like, it sounds like um, that. Yeah, that sounds pretty similar to what to what some people go through. Not everyone. Yeah. Um, well. Yeah. So anyway, let me just finish this. So that I interviewed for jobs then, but I ended up going to grad school, and then the only other job I've interviewed since has been like an academic job. So which is totally different. Um, yeah, that is um, a totally different experience. <laughs> <laughs> so so now and then now it's like you know it's 15 16 years later so um so you've never you've never been in you know the quote-unquote real world real world what like you've never like worked in the real world <laughs> <laughs> well you know i had some like summer jobs when i was a kid <laughs> it's completely different but <laughs> <laughs> yeah the answer yeah the answer is no i've not did you do internships in uh, grad school? Not in graduate school. I mostly just did research in grad school, but I okay. did some. I did some in college. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what you described, I, I like when when you posed this question, I my mind immediately went to. I feel like data science interviews are mostly defined by how close they are to software engineering like how close the role is to software engineering and the closer it is the more it's like what you describe with the microsoft interview where it's like like write a program on the board or something like yeah that. exactly like whiteboard and it, it's always like completely unrelated <laughs> i have bias against these interviews but they're uh, the the questions they ask are always usually completely unrelated to the day job and are sort of these like intellectual exercises and like oh well you know can you figure out this you know somewhat well-known uh, not well-known but usually they're like toy problems that are recycled at these different companies so right yeah they're just like these known challenges for software engineering related to data and so i think especially at the bigger companies so Probably similar to what you went through, I think with the really large companies like Google and Facebook, um, they just have a really regimented program (laughs) of interviews where they don't veer too much from it. They have, you know, a process they go through um, and it involves usually like you, I think at this point, either whiteboarding the code or 
actually writing it on like a machine they provide you <laughs> right right yeah. yeah and so like writing up a program um and then i would say for for interviews that are more analytics focused there's sort of a analytics flavored version of that so it might be like building um tables or building a schema for like some sort of problem that your that your business might face uh-huh. um and then if you get into like the product analytics side so again, it's these are ideally they're correlated with the type of role you're interviewing, but they aren't always. Can, sorry, can I can I just ask you like a more basic question? Like, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Are these are so like how often would you be like handed a computer and like asked to do something like like literally like on the spot or on the computer? Mm-hmm. Is that you mean like how often, how many interviews, or how often in one interview? Oh no, I mean how often like how many inter- how many companies might ask you to do something like that like is that a common thing yeah i would say close to 100 percent. oh okay okay yeah Yeah. and then what they ask you to do will be (laughs) i i don't know if this is true at all but my gut (laughs) reaction is like oh the bigger the company the more esoteric the problem they're gonna ask you (laughs) (laughs) well i mean on the one hand it seems like I think, yeah, I think that seems to be like the unifying factor of all interviews is that like the interview has little to do with the job mm-hmm. <laughs> o- yeah. often, often. But but that said, it's like, I think it's, it seems like it would be hard for a company that is trying to keep a lot of things secret to be like, here's what we do every day, you know? Right. And, uh, and, and why don't you do it too? Oh, oh and then like most of those people, they're not going to hire, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then like all of a sudden company secrets are... Or just fly out all over yeah. the place, right? <laughs> yeah. I think there are some instances where you're interview, you you sign an NDA. Um, oh, I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I have no idea how often, though. Yeah. Um, I haven't done a ton. I haven't. I feel like there's the... Um, there are people who will spend six months, they'll be unemployed for some stretch of time, and they'll study a bunch, and they will do interviews at, like, every company. Um and then now when you say study a bunch you mean so i mean this is more for i would i mean yeah maybe all data science jobs i'm not totally sure but i would say when you're getting closer to like the software engineering like data engineering roles um you're really going to get asked like hard computer science type problems um and so then you're going to need to like it's almost like studying for the GREs or something where oh you like, my. yeah, like you go through or like maybe better example of studying for comp exams for in grad school. So like the comprehensive exam being the like after your first year of coursework, you take this class and that kind of determines whether you go forward or not. And so um, I would say it's all like, again, I have not gone through this process before, like of, of really studying and like diving deep into the CS stuff. Um and but the way I from the times I've observed it happening, it it does seem like that's the that's the analog I think of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from my life. That's the most <laughs> similar experience I've had. Mm-hmm. Um and like I said, so it's kind of funny because I feel like for software engineering, maybe just because there's so many people and it's the type of field that is prone to this sort of uh <laughs> like hazing ritual uh-huh. <laughs> like okay. there's definitely uh ego involved or i don't for whatever reason in software engineering this is like the name of the game 
the, the culture the that, is different. What's that? But the culture is diff- different. Yeah, the culture is yeah, and it, I mean to the point that even if you're even if you have a startup that's acquired by a company, you might still have to go through this entire interview process. I see. Okay. Yeah, so it's just like it. It's it's so it's so baked into the culture that that's not going to change and it but it's also i i feel like maybe google i feel like google came out with something talking about the success of their interviews and whether or not right yeah i think their their head of like um human resources or something like that i can't remember uh yeah what the title is he, uh, he there was some study that they did at google that said that there wasn't really any individual factor or weren't really any factors in yeah. the interview process that actually predicted um whatever metric of success you want to choose <laughs> yeah it oh i mean I, I can yeah. totally i can totally see that um uh-huh. because i f- i find it to be even though I, i'm not in charge of hiring at a major company i i do find it to be true in kind of other contexts you know totally. it's like you know you pick grad students or you know admitting grad students or things like that it's off this like often the application process itself you know provides only a certain kind of information Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to, um, for, for a lot of jobs, especially jobs that kind of require creativity, it's like, it's hard to know how do you like measure that beforehand, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that is a key point that the creativity is a key component of all of these jobs. And I feel like that doesn't get talked about a lot. I think, yeah, it's cause, I think cause it's hard to talk about. I, uh, like it's, um, people kind of know it when they see it, but like, it's, it's hard to be like, oh yeah, this person was two point four creative, and this person was only six point seven. You know, like yeah. Um, <laughs> this could, <laughs> interviews could be. So again, I'm thinking specifically more of like software engineering or like machine learning engineer interviews, but it could yeah. be a really good case of optimizing the only function you can define, <laughs> rather right. than optimizing yeah. what you should be optimizing. Yeah, it's kind of optimizing what you can measure and not yeah. what you really want. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it's what you can measure, right? And yeah. Um, and then the other thing, I think I was getting started on this earlier. The, the other reaction I have is just that I feel like tech interviews, it's it just so often becomes this like ego trip for the person conducting the interview, where it's like a way to feel smart. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's not and and there's not always good mechanisms at these companies to rein that in you know yeah and so i feel like that's part of why they get so toxic because it's just like yeah it's it's like the what you you feel dumb most of the time (laughs) (laughs) and so it's the one time you can feel smart (laughs) and like you're weak right so it's like yeah you're gonna gonna take advantage (laughs) yeah you're gonna take advantage um yeah my only exposure to this uh, i've had a few students who have kind of interviewed at non-academic positions mm-hmm. uh not in the tech industry but kind of in, like in pharma and those kinds of jobs mm-hmm. and and um and they have i've seen like they've gotten problem they've gotten things where like they'll they'll the company will give them like a three-page problem or statement um mm-hmm. and then they need to take like anywhere between 24 to 72 hours to kind of write something look at the data analyze it and write a report and then send it back like does that get done too it does, definitely, yeah. And I, I feel like maybe I should have started this by being like, here's how a typical interview looks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I may, I may have prompted you with a bad question. <laughs> well, no, it's, yeah. So a typical interview will usually look like some sort of phone screen followed by 
some sort of take home, um, followed by like usually from there, followed by a um, on site interview of some sort. Okay. Um, yeah. But that being said, the take home. I feel ambivalent. So the take home is a really good opportunity to like show what you're made of. And if it's a good prompt, it's, it's, you know, it, that's like much more reflective of what your work will actually look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then the downside is that that's a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. It's asking a lot. It's asking quite a bit. And I've actually heard of interviews where they'll pay you for that. So, because right. especially if you get a no, and it could be for completely innocuous reasons like, oh, you know, the landscape shifted at the company and we actually aren't hiring for this role anymore. Right. And so then it's like just to make everyone feel not exploited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we'll pay you, you yeah. know, consulting fee. Um, and it's true that sometimes people being on the other side of that. So when I was at Etsy, we would do um, take home interview. And it's true that like it would be exposure to new ideas and new, um, especially like software choices. It was interesting to see if people were using our packages, what our packages were they using. So yeah, I think yeah. that is an honest exchange to like pay someone for that. But that's extremely rare. <laughs> I think maybe one company once did it and pe- like posted on Hacker News about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was news, right? Yeah, yeah it was news. <laughs> yeah. But, I, have heard, I have heard of some software companies, like when they hire people, they'll have them work there for a week. You know? Oh, um, wow. And yeah. then, you know, they'll pay them for the week. Uh-huh. Um, and so that they can kind of interact with them and kind of put them on a little project and see how they do. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's uh, but interesting. I think that's even more, more rare, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's, I've certainly never heard of that, but yeah, but like, you know, like doctors do that often. I think you're, you know, if you're interviewing for like a practice, you know, they'll have you come in and see some appointments. Wow. Um, and, uh, just to make sure you're, you're not like, you know, horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm at the actual job itself. Yeah. Know? Well, I think the the equivalent here is just, um, and this is, I mean, geez, having been in Silicon Valley now for a year, or close to it, I guess. (laughs) I don't know if San Francisco technically is part of Silicon Valley. I would say yes, but. (laughs) I mean, I think, yeah, Silicon Valley grows every year, right? Yeah. (laughs) I think it reaches down, now with like Snapchat, it goes all the way down to Los Angeles, I think, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, so with, um, But I think here, people, the attitude here is so much that people bounce from job to job so, like, with such freedom. (laughs) Uh And I think the non-compete, I mean, I I don't totally know what culture has created that, but there's, like, like, there's no non-competes here. So that's, that was the difference between California and New York, for sure. Um, Meaning that you you can't like work at a similar company or you can't do the same job. I mean, like, yeah, I I never totally grok this, but I think the idea was it was especially that you couldn't like recruit someone away. Um, uh huh. So like if you if your boss went to another company, they couldn't recruit you to come work with them. Whereas here, it's like whole teams will <laughs> just go all at once. <laughs> yeah, like migrate, <laughs> and there's nothing stopping that. So I think that's actually the consequence rather than. Like, I mean, I guess maybe, though, if, like, someone's going from Uber to Lyft, <laughs> like, maybe that would also be a pl- something that wouldn't be allowed in New York. Um, so I'm not I'm not totally clear on that. I seem to recall in California that maybe, like, the, they used to have non-competes and they it somehow got challenged. And 
Interesting. I, I have some memory of that, but I don't know why. <laughs> Is that from the show Silicon Valley? <laughs> no, from it predates that, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. This does come up in Silicon Valley, the show, though. Okay. Where, like, they <laughs> Wait, have we... some sort of non-compete clause in their contracts. Uh, oh, in the Hooli, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't. No more spoilers. But <laughs> that was like season one, though. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> bless it. I thought it was season two. Oh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but... Sort of the let me let me rewind. So I was talking about not oh people leaving. So the equivalent of what you were describing of like working a week and then leaving is that certainly there are certain companies here that will like fire with abandon. <laughs> so they'll just be like, hey, we're gonna bring you on, and if it doesn't work out, we're gonna fire you. And um, oh yeah, so that's kind of like the trial period. <laughs> exactly, the trial period is more defined by that, and then the culture kind of just. It's it's acceptable because people are bouncing around so much. It's it's kind of horrible. I don't know. I don't know if I totally agree with it. <laughs> Stressful for people. It does, yeah, yeah. Although maybe it's not because then they're just like, well, I'll get another job. No big deal. Um, it's a strange land out here. I'm still adapting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I also think the other train of thought I didn't totally finish was like I was drawing the comparison. So there's software engineers where this is like, this well-established routine that is reviled by many of doing these like highly theoretical interviews and then i think like in terms of when you talk about like data science the analytics side they there's sort of like a imitation of that um where it's like oh we're gonna have these like sql coding challenges or whatever but it's certainly not as codified just because you're talking about such a smaller and less established group um yeah and so I do think that's – so the reason why I'm like I've never been through this, you know, sort of CS-heavy interview regime is because I've typically interviewed for more analytics-focused jobs. Um, yeah. And there, from my experience, there seems to be more – it seems like more rational <laughs> where it's like talking about your background and your experiences and things like that. Like it – it's less of a rigid, like, this is how we do interviews and this is how we proceed. Um, yeah. And more of a conversation. That's been my experience. Can uh, One question. Um, do you, do the, do you, in your experience, have these interviews ever kind of evaluated communication skills? Uh, not, like, not formally, but yes. <laughs> For sure. I mean, that's certainly in... It not, I mean, so you're saying not like, here's the part where we evaluate your communication skills. Not like a, there's like a specific part, right? Uh, but you, but in what context would that get evaluated, do you think? I think, so usually there'll be something casual, like a lunch. Um, and that's like sneakily <laughs> a chance to like figure out, you know, just like what this person is like. Um, yeah. And then usually that's a component of every single interview is just the person's usually evaluating one technical skill and then two, how they communicated it. Um, again, though, I've, I've only been involved with interviews for like analytics jobs. So yeah. I think for a machine learning job that might not come up as much. Um, yeah. Just because for usually when you're talking about jobs where you have business partners, there's this understanding that that's a key component of the job and like distilling, even the take home, like distilling it down to, like deliverable that is easy to digest and has key takeaway section and all of these things that make it easy um, for a business partner to pick it up and run with it. That's definitely something that 
in the interviews I've been involved with, that's a big component of it. Um, but if you're hiring someone to like help with a search algorithm at Google, <laughs> right. maybe that's not as important, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I have, I, unfortunately I don't have like, yeah, the full spectrum of responses to this. <laughs> no, well, I mean, <laughs> you have a lot more exposure than I have, that's for sure. So <laughs> I just, my, on that last point, I think I found that at least with like academic interviews, you know, often we ask them to give a talk about their research or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a big, that's like a major, for us at least, that's a major component of the interview. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, I feel like a big part of it, often left unsaid, is um, is their kind of ability to communicate complex ideas, uh, to kind of address questions, to kind of, you know, uh, and just to kind of, really just to kind of, uh, really just, I mean, just to communicate like all their ideas. And I think um, a lot of the dis- the kind of selection process revolves around kind of how well I think they do that, even mm-hmm. though it's not, even if it's not often not like explicitly said, you know. Well, so that's interesting, though, because when I think of academic interviews and the ones that I saw at Hopkins, <laughs> I feel like there's always a, there's a healthy tension <laughs> between wanting to communicate ideas clearly and then wanting to, like, wow everyone with a big yeah. slide full of math. And there, it's it's... I mean, my way of of uh, navigating academia was to not do the latter at all. That's just like my style. But I'm sure that hurt me in certain departments. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't. It it's not. I don't know that academia is full of people who want to value communication over everything else. You see what I mean? Well, well, yes, I see what you mean, but. On the other hand, they do anyway. Like you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like the 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 judge they judge people on kind of how they communicate what they know. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And, um, and so so sometimes you know someone will come in and they'll give a very kind of high level type of talk mm-hmm. uh, with no equations, nothing, and they'll be fine. And then someone will say, well, yeah, okay, but what about this one specific thing? You know, like, and then they'll ask kind of like a more detailed question. Mm-hmm. And then maybe sometimes that person will make it clear. Oh yeah, you know they know exactly what you're talking about, and it's it's about this X Y Z relationship and things like that. And it's mm-hmm. very clear that they really know. And mm-hmm. sometimes they don't. Like sometimes they don't really know the details. And um, and so, um, but being able to kind of make assure people of that knowledge, I think, is a communication aspect, right? I mean, I think yeah. Um, well, and then the interesting thing with that is that you have this like corpus of their work with all of their papers yeah and presumably at least one faculty member has like dug into that and actually understands you know whether this person's contributing to the field yeah i mean there if it's like a yeah if it's a new kind of there may not be that much i mean uh Mm -hmm. if it's a kind of a new graduate or whatever well and i will say so there is the tech that's where it's interesting with these like regimented um interviews where there is the tech equivalent of that, but sometimes the interview can like get in the way of it where there's lots of individuals with tons of work out there, like open source projects or uh-huh. blog posts or whatever. And the interview then kind of feels like this charade because it's like, well, we already know what this person is about. <laughs> right. Like everybody knows what this person's about. Yeah. <laughs> right. But then, I mean, that, you know, that has not stopped these interviews from just like plowing ahead like (laughs) and so that and i think that can be i I just feel like that's inefficient you know um 
But again, that's interviews for these like big established jobs. Whereas if it's, you know, someone looking for a co-founder or like a smaller company that doesn't have that yet, they would rely, they probably, they wouldn't be as handcuffed to the interview process. Right. Um, I, I feel like larger companies probably in every area have to have like a system, right? It's just, mm-hmm. otherwise it's chaos. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, speaking of this, I'm sure you are caught up on the whole Uber. Oh, yeah. 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 I, for, for, for the listeners who haven't heard, they're definitely worth uh, checking out this blog post from um, a woman who is an engineer at Uber, just like lambasting the company and, and describing just horrible and, most likely illegal things going on with like the HR department and managers and whatever. Um, and the one thing that did strike me during that was she's a software engineer. And one thing that struck me during reading that, which was not at all the takeaway, uh, she, she talked a lot about like performance evaluation scores and like I had a perfect review and then the review got like a negative ding and that affected my ability to be able to go to, um, to get like a scholarship to get some sort of master's at Stanford or something like that. And I remember being struck by that in part where I was like, Oh, that seems like so much process. Uh, that, I mean, it, it, like, it was just interesting to hear how that process was like one, the process was there. And then two, like all of the weird things they were doing to like get around the process and really, awful ways so it i don't know that's one of the times it's come up for me recently <laughs> realizing that these bigger companies yeah just have have process and they follow it yeah yeah it seemed like in this case they had all this like formal kind of structure that was just blatantly ignored <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um, basically so it's not who i mean i guess i don't know what the point of having a structure is if you're gonna ignore it but um yeah, well, because then you can say that you have the structure. I guess, that, yeah, I mean, that's true. I guess that's true. Um, all right, so I think, I don't know, anything is, I guess that's kind of, I just wanted to talk about interviews just because um, I hadn't done it in a while. Yeah, no, I'm always, I feel like I need to develop more of a hot take on interviews. <laughs> I, it would be interesting to get a better sense, like do a survey of my friends here and figure out, what their process has been like and yeah i i just feel like software engineering type interviews are, are kind of well known mm-hmm. um and i just but i haven't seen quite so much on like what a data science inter- or what a data anal- data analyst interview might look like yeah well i do i i i have this strong prior right now that that the again the data science interviews that are closer to engineering roles are looking more and more like engineering interviews. And so I I am interested in people who are interviewing for more data analysis roles, like what those look like. Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if that, my experience has been that's higher variance and it's sort of like ebbs and flows. (laughs) And I would, it would be interesting to hear if that's been other people's experience also. Yeah. So yeah, I guess if, if you're listening and you've been through this and want to talk about it, you can always email us. Yeah, for uh, sure. At uh, nssdeviations at gmail.com. So we'd love to hear from you. Uh, <laughs> at least I would. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm super curious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last thing I'll say, one thing I remember from my, when every, every like bank that I interviewed at, mm-hmm. it was 100% puzzles. It was just, uh, it was just one puzzle after another. Like, 
Yeah. You know, you know the kinds of puzzles that are like there are three sharks on one side of the river and two crocodiles on the other side of the river, and you have to cross. Everyone has to cross using this one boat or something, right? And like, yeah, they're all like that. And I'm so bad at those puzzles. I know. <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. I am terrible at those, too. Did you ever have the opportunity sizing puzzles where it's like, oh, you need to figure out how many pencils to make to supply all of California. Go. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I kind of put those in the same category. Yeah. I had those, too. Yeah. Like how many, you know, grains of sand are in this like (laughs) beach or something like that. Um, Yeah. Those I really hate. Uh, But sometimes the probabilistic, I, I guess when you have a probability puzzle, I'm okay with that. But that's just because I, I, I actually don't like probability puzzles. That was the thing I hated the most about my first probability class was that all the homework were like these puzzles. And there was clearly a group of students who had been doing them their whole life. Right. <laughs> and so they would always answer them right away. And I'd be like what is going on? Like, how did you figure that out? It'd be like, oh, yeah. Like, the birthday problem was the real... I just remember someone, right. like, immediately knew the answer. And I was like, right. how do you even begin this? Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And, uh, but I guess now I'm, like, more of that student where I'm just like, oh, yeah, I've seen this one before. Like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, like, a, a slow person. You know, I can't do these things, mm-hmm. like, on the spot. Well, that's what's so frustrating about the whole thing is that it's optimizing for, like, one personality type. And if you're not that personality type, it's just not as pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, the next topic is opinionated analysis development. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, would you like to tell us what this is? Yeah, sure. So, this is... I think I've alluded to this before. (laughs) This is this paper I'm writing that's only taken, like, eight months or something but it's a a paper on it's congealing the ideas that we've talked about so much on this podcast of just like how do you go about creating an analysis like quote unquote the right way or the way I've been framing it is in a way that minimizes the probability of having certain errors um, that we all know (laughs) like not reproducible like you can't recreate the results you know so that would be an example of a like an error that happens um and then so the idea is that over the over like the course of having this podcast over the last year i felt more strongly that this needed we need to generalize some of the concepts that so we're drawn to software like our studio um or like jupyter notebooks that allow us to do things that minimize these errors, these annoying errors that we run into. Um, but the conversation I've been so focused on software choices and like, oh, you should do this. And so I, the goal of this paper and then turn into a talk was to sort of take a step back and say, like, if we communicate this as like, oh, you've probably run into these errors before and it's not your fault. This is just a really error ridden process. It's like writing analysis is hard. And so here are conceptually things that you can do that are kind of known best practices for avoiding those errors. And by the way, here's software that implements those things. And you will be able to free up your cognitive burden for, or like you will have less cognitive burden with that so that you can free up your mind to do the more creative fun part of creating an analysis, like 
actually discovering insights. <laughs> and so, so yeah, so the, that was like a paper that I've been writing as part of this like data science compendium that's coming out. Um, and then I turned it into a talk for our studio conf. And now that talk is out, uh, on the R studio website or the conference website. Interestingly, not YouTube. They have like their own video player. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, it is out there. Um, but I'm really excited about it. I feel really happy with kind of like congealing this all into a, a paper. And so, and you've read it. So, yeah. So, uh, so first of all, I put a link in the notes for the video that the recording of your talk. And um, I don't, I, do you want to, I, I, I remember, so I read this like an early version of it. Um, and uh, there were like kind of a couple of, I guess, I can't remember what you called them, the domains or I guess. Um, yeah, they're like three, it's like adjectives for what you want yes. your paper to be or your like analysis to be. And it's um, reproducible, error-free or like accurate um, and then collaborative, which I think that one gets no airtime, um, but is actually really important. Um, and so, and so then it's like the way the paper is structured is, uh, there's sort of like a list of problems that you would run into, um, and that like are related to each of those adjectives. So like with accurate, um, you know, it's something like, oh, you like don't notice that there's a bunch of NAs in your data or something like that. Um. And so, and then like, here's the best practices, like doing unit testing on your data is a way to make sure that that you don't run in, or you minimize the probability of having that error and not noticing it. Um, and then the other thing that I failed to mention is just that all of this, like the minimizing error then allowed me to tap into the blameless post-boredom, like philosophy <laughs> which we've also talked about here but i feel like that's sort of the key the glue that holds it all together it's like if you approach it as like hey these problems happen it's not your fault <laughs> and this isn't this is like a known this is the process failing you it's not you being a bad analyst um then it makes it just much more likely that you'll be open to adopting this new process um, that will help you minimize the the number of times you have these errors occur. Do, uh, do you want to talk about the collaborative part just to, just because nobody talks about it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, so collaborative, collaborative was interesting because I felt like there was, um, like when people talk about using GitHub. So I think this is where focusing on software has actually been somewhat problematic because GitHub is like this solution for both the reproducible and sometimes the accurate and then also collaborative, right? It has like all these features that are for these different things. Um, and the collaborative one, especially, I mean, I feel like if you've ever been on a project with, with two people actually contributing code and not just like one person reviewing a paper, then it just, it falls apart so catastrophically. <laughs> 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 if you don't have like good process in place. Right, yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, it was like, I feel like with the collaborative, the problems you'd run into that I listed were like, you know, someone can't contribute code or they're not seeing the most updated version of your code or um, I can't remember all of them, but it was right, things yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, that's, uh, well, one of the things that I think is related to this and a topic is the, you know, what is the name of the person who does this 
job, right? Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. So that I talked about that in the in the talk more because um, when I first started thinking about this, it was more of a focus on naming the person. So you have like our developers were specifically people who develop our packages. And I was like, well, I want something for people who aren't interested in developing packages. Cause that really is, I was just thinking about this this morning. That's such a commitment of like maintaining software is a huge amount of work yes. and it does not make sense for everyone to be doing it. Like it's just, that's not, that's not a good use of time. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a, it's like um you know it's it's one of these uh, it's like an unfunded mandate you know what I mean it's uh yeah. it's one of these things that you have to like you like so there's like the investment of time and energy to create the package, but then the the residual time that literally goes off into perpetuity right <laughs> to maintain the package is totally unbudgeted for you know yeah and it's not and it's <laughs> it's yeah you like take the integral of that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, well, like it's almost so like, much more. <laughs> yeah, you have to like have like a permanent fund, you know, maybe figuratively speaking, a permanent fund of time or money that just kind of pays off a, a little bit every year to pay for that activity forever. Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like, forever. You need like a little endowment to kind of, you know, to allow you to maintain this package, right? Yeah. And otherwise you'll let people down. Like you'll feel bad. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, mean, I was you... thinking, I was actually feeling like slightly guilty about that because I, I have a blog post on um, creating R packages, which I still think is a great way to organize your code. But I had this moment of like, Oh no, maybe I'm part of the problem here. <laughs> Where I've like told everyone to write our packages. <laughs> it's okay to kind of to, to rethink your positions, you know. Yeah. I mean I yeah, hopefully <laughs> hopefully that's not the takeaway from that. I think it is really valuable for everyone to write our packages just for like maintaining your own code. But yeah, I think now if I were to write like a follow up blog post to that, I'd I mean that's sort of this whole project with the opinion analysis development is like let's focus on like the number of R developers can actually be fairly small compared to the number of people who are using those packages to do their job. And those people get like no title and no, there's no like formal, like they're not getting taught process enough. And, um, yeah. And so, yeah, I was more focused on the name when I was first thinking about this. And I've since decided that maybe I, I do understand that, giving people like the special like you're an analysis developer and then if you're not you're just an analyst and you don't need to worry about this like that is a problematic Gabe Becker pointed that out that's sort of a problematic divide because it might make people think that they don't need to work on it um yeah I mean it, it kind of comes down to like how um kind of how modular are these activities right I mean so mm -hmm. like is it is it true that one person can stick to their thing and another person can totally ignore that and stick to their thing mm -hmm. um Probably not in terms of like analysts versus developer versus software. I, I, I don't know. A lot of those things are still kind of run together. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to say that the data analyst doesn't need to know anything about those other things, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, so that's why about like halfway through this, I started just to focus on the, the process or activity rather than the job title necessarily. Um, and so, yeah, like defining the idea of writing the code that becomes the analysis <laughs> and separating that from the idea of the creative thinking of how you, you know, 
analyze data to make a business case or you know a scientific case or whatever so like separating those apart and then separating that like when you become an R developer it's usually because you've like spent all this time on code to develop an analysis and then you decide you want to like make that available to make it easier for other people and then you tap into the like R package development you know procedures that are slightly different than the analysis development procedures um yeah and so i feel like just defining this all will be so helpful <laughs> yeah no i agree yeah exactly just laying it all out is um mm -hmm. is something that i think desperately needed to be done <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm excited i, <laughs> I think when we first talked about it, I was like, this paper's going to come out in the fall, but I actually think it might come out in the spring now. <laughs> it's going to happen. I know there's a lot of, this is this part of a, a whole, it's, it's like a group of papers that are going to get all published together. Um, and so there's been a lot of movement on this recently. So I do trust that it's, uh, it's going to happen. But yeah, it's been like really, really fun. I've really enjoyed writing this. So I'm, and I really enjoyed the talk. So I would love to, um, I would love for people to watch it, you know, and uh, I I certainly put, you know, effort into it. So <laughs> I think that's I think that I think that much is clear. So. <laughs> All right. So it's time for free advertising. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you got? Uh, first, um, Stitch Fix has launched uh, plus sizes for women. So I'm super excited about that. So advertising my company. <laughs> um, that was super cool. Um and then uh, I guess for my like personal free advertising, uh, I've been reading this book called 10% Happier by Dan Harris. Have you uh -huh. heard about this? No. He's this, um, it's really good. I really recommend it. Cause he's this like, he's a news anchor. I think, I'm not sure what channel he's with, but he's a news anchor who um, had like an on air meltdown. <laughs> okay. And then, and it, 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 just talking about his life, but eventually the whole book is sort of about his journey into meditation <laughs> and okay. like how that helped him. He'd like been in like Afghanistan and was sort of suffering from like reporter PTSD and like used drugs. And, and it was just, it was really interesting and he's super charming and self-deprecating and just self-aware. And so it's, it's like an enjoyable read because he has an interesting life and then like, it was, you know, inspiring on the meditation front. So I, I enjoyed it. So cool. I recommend. Have you ever tried meditating? I have not. I recommend it. You recommend it? You recommend both the book and meditation? Yeah. Well, I feel like the book will make a better case than I could for it. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> I need to go to you more often because uh, you, you know, you read stuff. Um, oh, well. And I don't, so. Not that I much. <laughs> I try. <laughs> Been doing audiobooks. Um, <laughs> oh, you do? Do you do audiobook? Audiobook? Yeah, yeah. That was a huge discovery in grad school. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, because I cannot make it through a book. It's I don't know why. I just have a lot of trouble with it. The audiobooks, I I like plow through them. Um, and do you do you make any distinction between like ebooks or regular books? Like either one doesn't matter. Yeah, like <laughs> the issue is sitting down and reading. <laughs> okay. <laughs> doesn't matter like what. <laughs> It's, it's, it's the issue is sitting, uh, using your eyes to like look at text. Yeah, yeah, that's the issue. Audiobooks are great because you can. It's like you can listen when you're commuting or working out, and right. Yeah. yeah, not unlike this podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Um, all right, my thing is uh, the future package. Mm. Uh, it's an R package by Henrik Benson, mm-hmm. who I think is at Berkeley, and uh, it's weird. It's like so. It's 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 kind of the only, so the analogy that I would use is like if you ever used a like command line shell in Unix or something like that, mm-hmm. you can like run commands in the background. Mm-hmm. So like typically you write some command and then you add an ampersand on the end and then you can like hit enter and then it just kind of runs in the background you can kind of keep can doing keep doing your stuff oh i didn't know about that okay. well okay <laughs> that sounds handy <laughs> maybe it's because i'm old right yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's another one of those things one of your part of your interviews i'm sure <laughs> right yeah <laughs> so you know normally if you're doing stuff on the command line you you you, you type something in, you hit enter and you had to wait for it to finish right mm-hmm. and then you do the next thing and you wait for it to finish and then you do the next thing etc right mm-hmm um, so that's like kind of sequential uh, way. So like um, the future package kind of a, a creates like a mechanism by which you can delay computations into the future. I guess that's hmm. why it's called future. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea being like if you're going to assign to some object in R like the result of a lengthy computation, mm-hmm. but you don't need that result right this second, hmm. then you can just you can assign it and then like you then you can get the console back and kind of keep working, but it won't actually run the computation until later when it needs it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, or and also, and then you can also specify so that that when it does do the computation, it does it in like in like on a multiprocessor, like an, or like a multi-core kind of setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I don't. Know, I, I find it. I, I found it intriguing when I first saw it, and then like I kind of really, I was like super excited about it, and I got into it. Um, and then I, I kind of found it hard to like figure out like how I would use it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I just thought it was a cool idea and it's worth putting out there. So mm-hmm. um, it basically makes use of the uh, delayed evaluation kind of aspect of, or the lazy evaluation kind of aspect of R, mm-hmm. which is that R doesn't um, evaluate expressions until it actually needs them. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And I, I have the same reaction that you did where I can't actually, I can't imagine, I can so frequently I will be working on something and execute some sort of time consuming thing. And then I'll get really mad where I'm like, oh, I just want my R session back so I can work on other stuff <laughs> until <laughs> this. And then I'll usually use the RC to like open a different project. <laughs> like, yeah. Have, have my ways of getting around that. So I, I, my gut here is that this will be super helpful for that. Like it's something yeah. that's already in my workflow in like this weird hackish way. <laughs> the other way I can see it is that if you're building like an interface to something mm-hmm. and uh, the user can decide like what they, what aspect they want to do or, you know, and, but every aspect would involve some sort of time, potentially time consuming computation. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't necessarily want to execute everything, you know, everything at once. Um mm-hmm. And so, but anyway, so I don't know. I can, so the idea being that like, you might want to execute computation. You might want to specify the computation, but you don't have a, you don't necessarily have any control over like which one would be executed in what order. Mm-hmm. Um, then I can see something like this being useful, but also uh, there might be more mundane <laughs> usages <laughs> that like, I'm just not thinking of right now. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's called the future package. Um, yeah, that sounds right. really cool and creative. So, yeah. Um, all right. So I think uh, that's our episode for this time. All right. um, yeah. And we'll see everyone next time.